Hey everybody, this is Luna Tan, and this is Dwayne Paris. You are listening to Clubotech Publishing Radio. Here we talk about what's happening in the publishing industry today, share stories and insights from publishers, and discuss how we can shape the future of publishing. Welcome to the twenty-sixth episode of Clubotech Publishing Radio. I'm Luna, and I'm Dwayne Paris. This time, we are very pleased to have Esther Allen as our guest on the show. Esther Allen is a writer and a translator. She is a professor at Baruch College and in the PhD program in French and Latin American, Iberian and Latino cultures at City University of New York Graduate Center. She co-founded the Penn World Voices Festival in two thousand five. And guided the work of the Penheim Translation Fund from its inception in 2003 through 2010. Her translation works have earned her numerous honors, including the National Endowment for the Arts Translation Fellowship, the 2017 National Translation Award, Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters in 2016 by the French government. The Felix Gross Award for the CUNY Academy for the Arts and Science in 2012, and many others. Her essays, translations, and interviews have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review, Words Without Borders, Bomb, Lit Hub, The New Yorker, and other publications. Thank you so much for being with us, Esther. Thank you,、uh, Luna and Twain. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm grateful for the invitation. Oh, wonderful, Esther. So, before we talk about anything else, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Because I'm curious how you get inspired by translation and decide to、uh, let translation become your career choice, and then why French and Spanish? That's a great question. Thank you, Luna.、Um, I think in my case,、uh, every translator has different things in their biography that compel them outwards into other languages. In my case, it's probably a result of having spent five years of my early childhood in the Philippines, where my parents were missionaries, and of course, the Philippines was for a long time part of the Spanish Empire. And、um, we moved from the Philippines back to California, also for a very long time, part of the Spanish Empire. So I think my interest in Spanish comes from that, and my interest in Latin America also. And then I also spent my junior year abroad in Paris. You know the sort of classic thing that college students from the United States do.、Mm-hmm. And I was very in love with Paris, and I had a French professor who invited me to do a translation project with her, and that. That was my first published translation project, and really got me started. Just really wonderful. So, do you still remember the first translation work that means a lot to you?、Uh, well, I think it would have been the work that I did with that French professor. It was a French modernist, a series of French modernist prose poems、um, by a, a Swiss writer named Blaise Sandrard. 
And I was so honored that my professor had invited me to work on the translation of these poems with her. And then our project received you know, recognition. Um, we were we were shortlisted for a prize. So that made me think, oh, maybe I'm good at this, you know. So I had a very fortuitous first experience with translating a book because it was actually seen and appreciated and led me further into it. That's great. Esther, what does it mean to be a professional translator? And how do you go about actually translating a book? What is your, your process? And if you can possibly use an example for us. Well, it's interesting because there's an evolving, a very quickly evolving sense of what it means to be a professional translator. I think even 20 or 30 years ago, the idea that someone could achieve renown as a professional translator, that they could gain name recognition as a, as a professional translator was sort of a, almost ludicrous. And translators were viewed as kind of work for hire. You know, publishers would have a project. Um, you hire a sort of anonymous person to be the translator. Their name doesn't go on the cover. But that has really changed. And we're now seeing superstar translators like Anton Herr, who translates from the Korean and has sort of taught US readers to look for Anton Herr's name on a translation. Um, Jennifer Croft doing the same thing. People who see translation as part of a literary career as writers, right, where they're also publishing their own books. In my case, it's a little different because I am also a professor. So I'm not primarily making my living from translation. And as a result, I can't really describe my workflow of translating a book, except to say that I generally translate books that I myself have chosen to translate, um, rather than books that are brought to me by a publisher. It'll generally be, I have a book in mind that I want to translate and I'll take it to the publisher. So that changes things up a bit, a little bit, and I will be more involved in prefacing and annotating and, and doing all the scholarly things around the translation. Because really how I earn my living is by teaching translation, not by translating. And I'm in awe of the people who actually do earn their living by translating because it's a very difficult profession that's not very, without a lot of safety rails, right? Right, and I imagine getting context and the true meaning from one language to the next is a very um, difficult part of this too, yes? Oh yes, that's the whole crux of it. You you put your finger right on it. How do you convey meaning between languages when you're moving something into a completely different context where it will resonate off the other things in that context in completely different ways? That's it. That's really interesting. And uh, we both learned that you have a recent translation work, Antonio de Benedetto's The Silentiary. So could you use this as an example? Did you do any uh, anything special as a preparation before you get the translation started? Or do you need to reach out to the original author? Well, in the case of Antonio di Benedetto, he died in nineteen in the in the 1980s. So mm -hmm. I don't have an opportunity to reach out to him, <laughs> except except that. And, and this, I think, is a really important point for someone like me who translates from a university position as a literary scholar. I've done an enormous amount of research on Antonio Di Benedetto, which has helped me to understand 
what he was trying to achieve uh, with this novel, which he wrote in the 60s, in the mid 60s. So I traveled to Mendoza where the Benedetto lived and where the novel is kind of tacitly set. And that really helped me to understand it um, much better. I've done a, re a lot of research on the critical writing about Antonio Di Benedetto. And I've also researched um, the various editions of the of the silenciary because uh, he was one of these writers who would sometimes re-edit his work extensively. And he did that between the first and second edition of this novel in ways that are very important for our understanding of the novel. So um, there was a great deal of background and contextual research that went into that translation so that I could try to, you know, really find a way of doing in English, understanding in English and doing in English what Antonio Di Benedetto had been trying to do in Spanish in the 1960s. Yeah, so very inspiring and I appreciate the insight. I think something Duane just mentioned set up a very good start for my next question. Uh, I would think most people would always have a very difficult time appreciating a, a language that they themselves do not speak. So, which is with something we just touched a little bit, the difficulty of crossing between languages. Um, and I remember a very good quote from uh, one art article of yours, uh, that is the pen of communication. So from that point, so my question is, when dealing with the original work and the target audience, how would you balance both sides why side could be they they need to stay true to the author's original intention. The other side could be how would you facilitate for the target target readers understanding? So can you tell us something about that? I have to say you two are asking really awesome questions. You've just gone to the absolute crux of you know two hundred years of translation studies with this question. And I'm, I'm happy that you picked out that phrase, the pain of communication, um, which was actually said by Irji Grushek, a Czech writer who was president of Penn International. When, and he said that in front of a, a Penn International gathering in Africa, actually, in uh, mm -hmm. Senegal, in Dakar. And I think that it's something that we in English, we kind of like to think that we can just skip over the pain of communication because everybody speaks English, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the way to avoid the problems of translation, the pain of communication is for everybody to speak English and then we're all fine. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually very short-sighted and self-defeating um, because of course people speak English in different ways and bring different things into English. And also the inability to kind of think outside of English is very intellectually limiting for people who are bound by that. And then the ability to imagine speaking another language, even if you don't, is something that translation can give you. If you read in translation, um, you start coming to a sense, a greater sense of how people outside of English experience the world and see the world. I'm thinking of a passage in a beautiful book called Flights, which um, is by Olga Tokarczuk, who won the Nobel Prize and was translated by Jennifer Croft. And it's from the perspective of someone who speaks Polish and she's thinking about how limiting it must be for people within English 
to, to live in this world where everyone kind of understands them and speaks their language, they have no private other linguistic world that not everyone understands and not everyone speaks. Whereas for the Poles, they have this small private linguistic domain, cultural domain that is theirs alone, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a really beautiful passage. And I think that it can explain that situation to someone who reads the translation in English, right? Even without reading Polish. And the question of how you convey foreignness in translation is one with so many different answers, right? Um, in my translations, I feel enabled to use a lot of Spanish, for example, if I'm translating from Spanish, because the United States has become, I wouldn't say a bilingual country, but Spanish is increasingly familiar in US English. We have more and more Spanish words, and we have a whole literature, a whole Latinx literature that incorporates lots of Spanish. So I have lots of models for how to do that. So that would be one way. Somebody translating from Polish, you know, wouldn't really be able to do that because English doesn't have so many Polish words. There's not so, so much familiarity between those two languages. So again, it's kind of a context by context basis. How do you make things legible to your audience, but at the same time, remind them that what they're reading is not, doesn't come out of their own context, is bringing them something from a different context. Very interesting. Actually, myself also has some translation experience. One time is Chinese and English. Second time is Chinese and Japanese. So one difficulty that always got me is about humor. Because humor is a thing that... <laughs> That can only work in one language context. And then when you move it to another language ecosystem, it's really hard to make it work. And do you have related experience on that? Well, yes, exactly. Humor is very hard to make work because it depends on puns. It depends on... There's actually a fantastic story about that told by, of all people, uh, President, former President Jimmy Carter, who, like many speech makers from the United States always likes to begin his speeches with a joke, right? To sort of mm -hmm. put the audience at ease. So he was addressing an audience in Japan and he hadn't really thought about it. And he launched with this joke. I don't know what the joke was. And then he looked at the, the interpreter's face and she was just like frozen, you know, she just didn't know what to do. And then she said something and he got the biggest laugh that they'd ever got, that he'd ever gotten from this, just like the audience was just roaring. It was like the most gratifying moment of his life as a speech maker. And so afterwards he said to the interpreter, what did you do? How did you translate that joke? Whatever you did was magnificent. I've never seen people laugh like that. And she said, I, and she was very embarrassed. She didn't want to tell him. And then she said, look, I had no idea what the joke was. So I said, the president has made a joke, please laugh. <laughs> okay. I, I bet it's the most cooperative audience. <laughs> but the truth is, it's actually funny, right? I mean, I think that it was like a funny moment. <laughs> wow. Esther, you co-edited To Be Translated or Not To Be, which was published in English, Catalan, and German and distributed at the 2007 uh, Frankfurt Book Fair. It included an article titled 
translation, globalization, and English. It explained the dominance of the English language in the world from different perspectives. Example, eco-linguistics and bio-linguistics. First, can you define those terms for our audience? And can you explain a little more in detail how this dominance has been impacting the language system of the world? Okay, another great question, you guys. So echolinguistics and biolinguistics, I think of as being sort of related. It's the idea of looking at systems of language as an ecology. And it's an idea that becomes increasingly important in our own time because just as people in the 20th century became increasingly aware of ecosystems, as they became increasingly aware of these mass extinctions that were occurring, we too are living in a time of mass extinction of languages where the communities that have sustained these languages sometimes for thousands and thousands of years are being hemmed in, being restricted, being oppressed, having their language rights curtailed. Um, people within those communities are finding that it's more economically beneficial to speak languages of the broader reach, global rank language. Here I'm thinking specifically of many indigenous languages. And so those languages are simply dying out. Um, it's very interesting because New York City, where I live, is said to have more speakers of uh, dying languages, languages that are in peril, than any other city because so many immigrants and refugees from around the world end up moving to New York City and finding refuge in New York City. So there's actually an organization that's that's part of City University of New York, where I teach, called the Endangered Language Alliance here in New York, that contacts that they call, they're called terminal speakers, the people who may be in the last generation to speak a language, and helps them sustain and revitalize their language. And a lot of that, I mean, English is not the only globally dominant language. Spanish has supplanted many languages. Um, Mandarin has supplanted many languages. Uh, there are lots of um, kind of, let's say, invasive species languages in the world today. But English is probably the most invasive species for two reasons. Number one, English tends to export a huge amount. If you look at, at the total number of texts translated worldwide, most translated texts are translated from English into other languages. Um, and meanwhile, English itself, translating into English does very little. English translates less than almost any other global language and, and far less than the, the, the less global languages. Uh, so that it's in itself constitutes a kind of roadblock on the circulation of language, of, of culture and of knowledge internationally. And then secondly, English has kind of imposed a stranglehold on the academic world, where scholars are pressured to publish in English for the global ratings of universities. There's many university global rating systems that only count articles published in English. Um, science, for example, is mainly published in English, no matter where in the world you are working as a scientist. English has kind of colonized all fields of knowledge and told scholars in those fields, you must publish in English. So this is another kind of disturbing 
linguists call it epistemic exclusion, right? Um, obviously, knowledge will flourish more fully if it flourishes in every language. And there are a number of really interesting and beautiful projects to address this, but the situation remains very sort of, you know, that the global dominance of English has not yet been uh, really addressed. I will say, however, that in terms of our imaginary in the United States, I think there is a real opening. And I can explain that if you think about science fiction in, in our star, uh, star Trek imaginary, right? Everybody spoke English and then the universal computer just kind of made that the, the lingua franca of the galaxy because it could instantly interpret between any two languages, right? So nobody on Star Trek, or very rarely, there's like one Star Trek episode that's super interesting in this respect, but very rarely on Star Trek did anyone encounter the pain of communication. We were dealing with an intergalactic universe in which English was the only language you needed. Um, and what's really interesting is that as sci-fi has developed in English over the last 20 years, all of a sudden there's lots of sci-fi in translation. For example, I'm sure you know, Luna, about the great um, Chinese sci-fi trilogy series called The Three-Body Problem, oh, um, which is, yes, won the Hugo Award in English. So sci-fi itself starts to imagine the world via different languages. And we then see sci-fi shows where people actually are speaking different languages. And now we're starting to see shows and, and films are being accepted in Korean, in other languages. Um, I mean, it's very interesting to me how Anglophone mass culture has become so much more receptive in the last 20 years to um, K-pop and, uh, you know, we had uh, Roma that almost won and then Parasite did win the Oscar for Best Picture, despite not being in English. We have TV shows made in the United States that are multi, hugely multilingual. So I really feel like there is a shift within English, and I hope that the trend goes that way rather than the other way. Do you think that we translate enough, especially from other languages into, into English? No, we absolutely do not translate enough. And it's interesting because there's been a huge amount of effort and energy put into this. In 1999, the National Endowment for the Arts did a study of translations into English, focusing only on literary translation, because obviously there's lots of sort of technical translations that go along with, you know, manuals and handbooks and products and, um, you know, sort of industrial translations. So we were looking only at culture at the NEA. But what was really interesting was that this was the first time the US government had done any sort of study about what gets translated into English. Whereas governments like France, China, the Netherlands, you know, basically every other government has considered the monitoring of sort of literary exchange, cultural exchange with the rest of the world via books that are translated out and books that are translated in as being a sort of really important indicator. But nobody in the United States even thought to look at it until 1999. And the study that was done came up with this kind of erroneous figure, which was that of all the literary books published that year, only 3% of them were translated from another language. Now, if you looked at that in the landscape of 
all the books published that year in English in the United States, it was way less than 1%, right? Um, and so somehow then this 3% figure became the, the norm and it's what people talk about, even though it's actually grotesquely exaggerated. And it still is. Um, in 1999, the NEA found about 300 books in translation. I would say that now there are about a thousand into English every year, which sounds like a lot, but think of how many books are published all over the world every year in every language. It's really not that much. It's just a few books from every single linguistic culture in the world. And this despite decades of energy and funding and work to try to make English more hospitable to translation. So we really still have a long way to go. It's really, really interesting to get to know all these facts. You just shared about the dominance about uh, of the English language. I wouldn't have known that there are whole lots of works that needed to be translated into English for a better communication. I think this is much, much more than only cultural communication or literature, because at its core, it's also about, I remember one word from your article is the power of discourse. And more than all these things, I remember there is another point that mentioned in your article that is about the importance of the language legacy. So we understand the importance of biology diversity, but what is the diversity of linguistics? And what does it actually mean for us to lose if we got to lose the language legacy? You know, that's such a great question because I think about this a lot. If you were aware of a cup, right, that was made in ancient Greece, you know, and it's 3,000 years old, and it's this beautiful, priceless, ancient object made by humans that everybody can see and touch and, you know, take in. Obviously, we don't all know what that cup means. There are image on, images on the side. Some of us might be able to decipher those images, understand what they refer to. Others might not be, but we can all see it's this beautiful, ancient, object is part of our legacy as humanity, right? We need to cherish it. And also it has monetary value, right? And because of its antiquity. So we understand that value. We all of us understand that value, or most of us do. But uh, for a language that you don't speak, which is in many ways a much higher creation than that cup, right? That cup was created by a small group of people enjoyed by another small group of people. A language is an entire society evolving over generation after generation, um, an interface between that society and the world. Uh, you know, in a way, the greatest human technology that we have, everything, every other technological achievement we have comes out of language. And yet, if we don't speak it, if it's not our society, we can't find a way of attributing value to it, many people. Um, we just dismiss it as being something that doesn't concern us at all. One of the highest achievements of human civilization and human technology. So I'm pleased about the growing multilingualism in English because I hope that it will make people understand what a language is and how extraordinarily valuable a language is. And I think that that knowledge in the United States is really coming out of indigenous communities now. 
where there's a huge linguistic revitalization movement among um, the Wampanoag, for example, on Cape Cod and the islands, who have started to reclaim their language from written texts left behind by colonization. And they have now schools in Wampanoag and children are learning Wampanoag and they're reclaiming this linguistic heritage for themselves and their culture. And that's happening all over the country in a way that I think is really, really beautiful. And I think as the rest of society sees that, they can come to a greater understanding of just how valuable that the cultural artifact that is a language is and should be for everybody. Because at some point you want to be able to say, you know, this was my grandmother and this language was the world she lived in, right? Yeah. Um, and, and suddenly, I mean, when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, that's, you know, it's always that the new generation always dismisses, right? And says, mm -hmm. I want to go towards the thing that's going to help me advance in the world, right? But then you pause and you think about it and you say, no, that was actually of great value. And that's why I think that these revitalization efforts um, are so important. It can happen in an individual life also. I read a beautiful essay this week by one of our foremost translators from the Hungarian, a woman named Otili Mulzet, who grew up in Canada, uh, learned that she was adopted and learned that her mother, her biological mother, uh, was Hungarian, her biological mother, whom she never met. But that led her on a quest to learn Hungarian, to learn more about this hidden part of herself via Hungarian. And she now lives in Hungary and makes her living translating books from Hungarian into English. So it can happen on an individual level also, right? The recuperation of a language in order to find this other part of yourself that you realize is really valuable and that you want to claim for yourself. That's a beautiful story. I really like that. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity to share one more quote from your article, which itself is a quote from Guta. It says, every literature will exhaust its vitality if it is not refreshed by the interest and contributions of a foreign one. I think this sentence applies to all the, the things and the stories we talked about. I like this. Yeah. I, yes, I, I like that too. And it's kind of like a manifesto for those of us who are involved in this growing sphere of translation that the healthiest uh, sorts of culture, I mean, it's in it, at the end of the day, it's really diversity, right? I mean, I think we speak of diversity in so many different ways in the United States, but how rarely is linguistic diversity included in that, right? Exactly. Um, but I really feel like linguistic diversity is one of the most fundamental forms of diversity and um, kind of the basis uh, for every other sort of diversity. And that has been a sense of thinkers like Goethe for, for centuries. Absolutely. Esther, is there anything else that you would like to share with us today that we haven't asked? I, I think we've covered a lot, actually. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really, yeah. You guys have been very thorough with your questions. I, I can't really think of too many other things I'd like to add, except to say to people, I, I, I would like to say to your listeners in the publishing industry who are interested in translation, 
um, that there are tons of ways for them to engage with translation now, which is really an achievement of all this work that I've mentioned of the last 20 years. I would especially point them to a website called Words Without Borders, which has become like a very central clearinghouse. Um, I actually sat at a table at the Words Without Borders gala with Clopotech people. So that's how I ended up here today. So I have to put in a plug for Words Without Borders. They're doing amazing things. You can visit their site and see what they're doing. And almost everything on the site is bilingual now. You can see the English translation, but you can also have it to circulate in the original for those people for whom that works. So you as an editor can get insight into all these different regions, all these different languages, all on a single website, which has been built up over more than 20 years now. And it's an extraordinary archive of new material, largely, from all over the world, from places that have never had anything translated into English before. They're constantly expanding the frontiers. Um, and I would say that Words Without Borders is a, is a fantastic resource. And one other resource that I would mention specifically for people in publishing is the Breadloaf Translators Conference, which happens every summer up in Middlebury, and which gathers emerging translators from all over the world to share projects. Lots of editors go to kind of fish for different projects, to see what people are doing, to see what people are talking about. And the same is true of the American Literary Translators Association, which has become an increasing resource for editors, um, people like Gabriella Pagefort, who used to run Amazon Crossing, which is devoted entirely to translation. She would come to the Alta conference to talk to translators, see what they were working on, develop new projects. Um, so these are potentially great resources for people in the publishing industry if they really want to engage with translation and make it a bigger part of their portfolio. Absolutely, Esther. Uh, we appreciate this important message you, said, you just sent out, and we would love to help spread the word out for the great translators, the events, and uh, the great works they have done. And uh, thank you. A pleasure. As we're getting close to the last part of our interview, which we call signature questions. So if you're ready, we're going to bring on the first one then. Okay. okay. Um, just let us know the best way for you to get your hair down after a heavy day. Uh, hot bath and a book. That's my charm every time. The next question is, would you tell us two people, whether they're still with us or they've passed, that you would like to invite for dinner if given the opportunity? Um, sure, I'd like to invite Antonio Di Benedetto, uh, the author that I've devoted a lot of my time to translating, um, who died when I was you know, in my early 20s and whom I never met. So I would definitely want to know him better. And, um, Aside from Antonio Di Benedetto, uh, Cary Grant. I'll invite Cary Grant because I really like Cary Grant. Okay, great. Then the last one is, could you share one of your favorite phrases? In your case, I would love to hear it in uh, a sentence or two in Spanish or French. Uh, sure. Um, there's a funny little phrase that I use um, with my translation classes as an example of how complicated translation can be. In English, we have an expression, where there's smoke, there's fire. 
right? Mm -hmm. Meaning if there were rumors about something, there's probably something actually going on, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we use smoke and fire to convey that. Now, very rarely would you think of a river when you think of smoke and fire. But if you want to convey that same expression in Spanish, um, what you say is, cuando el río suena es porque agua trae, um, which literally translates as when the river is, is, is making a noise, when the river is rattling, it's because there's water. It's because yeah. water is running, right? Which is the same meaning as where there's yeah. smoke, there's fire, um, uh -huh. but conveyed in a completely different way. So no one would ever think that you would translate fire and smoke as river and water. But in this particular case, that would be a very adequate and apt translation. That's so interesting. And Thank you very much. This has been wonderful. Dear listeners, this is Esther Allen. If you'd like to go further into the world of translation, check out the 24 programs available through the online conference Translating the Future, which Esther co-curated with Alison Markin Powell at the Center for the Humanities at the City University of New York Graduate Center. We put the links in the episode notes. For more information about Esther and her translation work, please visit her website at estherellen.com. You can also find the link in the episode notes. Thank you so much, Esther, for being with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. That was wonderful. Subscribe to Colopatech Publishing Radio in whatever podcasting app you listen to or get this podcast delivered to your inbox by subscribing to Clopatech's newsletter. It's free and easy to sign up. The link is in the episode notes. Special thanks to Nello Clopatech, Marian Belling, Bjorn Berger, Angie Heinrich, Stefan Kaufer, George Logan, and Mark Wintel for making this episode possible. Leave us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email us at podcast at clopatech.com. This is Clopatech Publishing Radio. I'm Dwayne Paris. I'm Luna Tan. Thank you for listening.